If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. This is Murder in the Rain, where each week, Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. The hole in the ice on the lake was the last crumb the search party needed to tell the tale of the missing men, and the tracks of the heavy sled parked on its shoreline had led them there. The men had vanished from a small cabin on Little Lava Lake, 20-ish miles southwest of Bend, Oregon, in the Deschutes National Forest. The searchers had earlier hiked in from Bend to the cabin, then trudged a quarter mile northwest from there through heavy snow to Big Lava Lake. For reference, Little Lava Lake covers 130 acres an area approximately the size of 10 to 12 Costco's, and Big Lava Lake is 368 acres, so you do the math. That's a lot of Costco's. I don't want to do the math. All right, it's like three times. <laughs> Thanks. They're cute little lakes separated by solidified lava and surrounded by verdant forests. It took three months for anyone to notice the trappers were missing. Last seen on the morning of January 16th, a search party wasn't organized to locate the men until April 13th. This was when Owen Morris, one of the trapper's brothers, went to the cabin and noticed their traps were set but had yet to be emptied. Sadly, because the traps hadn't been maintained, there were over a dozen frozen animals in them, Aww. and they looked to have been dead for quite a while. Concerned, Owen called on two other men, a brother-in-law of one of the trappers, H.D. Innes, and Pearl Linz, superintendent of the Tumalo Fish Hatchery near Bend, who was sought out for his considerable knowledge of the area and a general air of authority, I guess. Heading southwest, the group snowshoed a grueling 22 miles to reach Little Lava Lake. Approaching the snow-swept cabin, their stomachs dropped when they weren't greeted by the trappers. Only silence. The searchers found the cabin abandoned. Vacant, except for a cat, alive yet emaciated after months trapped inside feeding on crumbs. Mm. When the front door was first cracked, the kitty ran through the men's legs and rocketed toward the fox pens out back where it likely knew animal feed would normally be set out. In order to feed their families and make some money during the cold season, the three men were supposed to be sheltering in the cabin through the winter, setting traps, extinguishing the animals, and processing them for food and fur. Some of the more common animals found in the area were foxes and the weasel-like marten, whose furs they would be selling. As the searchers made their way into the door, surely with the poo scared out of them by the cat, they didn't see anything that looked amiss, at least not at first. Taking note of what was around, it was concerning to see remnants of a breakfast mummified on the table and what appeared to be the trapper's next meal burnt on the stove. Most alarming and ominous, the calendar was still displaying January. 
I don't know if it's a scary movie thing or just in general, but the calendar being on January, that reminds me of one of the offices that I clean. They have this corner that I think because it's a training facility, so they really haven't used it much. It looks like almost like a bomb went off or something and everything is stopped. The clock is stopped at 11 o'clock ish. And the calendar, it's like a dry erase calendar, but it's still March of 2020. Weird. And it's just so eerie because no one's ever in there. And it feels like I don't like time has literally stopped. Is it still like that? It's still like that. Oh, my. It's that's like, so cool. I saw it this weekend and I'm like, oh, every Our time. office from when no quarantine happened, like nobody really returned. I think one yeah. guy worked in there and they sent pictures as they were closing out the office because everyone's no gone in Portland. It, yeah. And my chair from when I left is like in the same position. My desk is there intact. So like, weird. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's just creepy. Oof. It's almost like no one loves those spaces almost. and is fine just closing them off. Well, we were we had just moved into it, too. Like, oh, yeah. You quarantine. Had. I think we had been in the office three months at most. Like yeah. paint was still you could smell the fresh paint. Isn't that funny, though, how a, how a calendar can elicit that? You know, like it's just a it is kind thing, of but a, it's so eerie. I think it might be from movies because th- that's how you see like when after bombs or zombie yeah, apocalypse yeah or you like stop the clock you know Titanic style right there's a uh, there's another one of those kind of details coming up in a little bit too that oh. seems like it's out of uh, Agatha Christie or something oh checking the trapper's possessions it was found that two of the men's pistols were missing as was the sled they used to move cargo however their gear bedrolls tools, and clothing were still inside the cabin. It all looked bleak, but the trappers were professionals and known for their expert woodsman survival skills. They were so cautious they even had a rule that only two of them could leave the cabin at a time to work their traps. The third would remain in the cabin in case the pair out working didn't return for whatever reason and needed to be located. They could handle themselves. One of them was even an ex-Marine, yet all three had broken their own protocol leaving their shelter at the same time without rifles or donning warm clothing. As the search party continued to take stock of what was at the cabin versus possible missing items, they went to a fox pen the cabin's owner, Edward Logan, had on the property. Logan had kept five foxes in the pen as part of a breeding and fur operation. Looking inside, the men found no foxes and instead they came across a blood-stained hammer. It was possible the trappers had been injured in a robbery of said foxes as they were quite valuable, with one said to be worth the equivalent of 17000 in today's dollars. An article in the Bend Bulletin noted, quote, Untouched food in the fox pens was mute testimony that a stranger had tried to feed the shy animals. Afraid and distrustful, the foxes apparently had refused to eat. None of the little animals were in sight. With each added irregularity found at the cabin, the more dire the whole situation seemed. The bloody hammer and calendar seemed to be ghastly indicators that they had met a dark end. The search party, consisting of Innes, Linz, and Owen Morris, then left the area, snowshoeing as hard as their legs would mush to report the oddities. They were desperate to get back to civilization, where they could report their findings and get the law involved, and were probably glancing back over their shoulders every few seconds for the entire return trip. With the clues they found, the searchers surmised one of two things that may have happened. They were either robbed and killed by someone who knew of the valuable foxes, or they had disappeared taking their cargo sled eight miles south to the dam on the Crane Prairie Reservoir. There they had provisions stowed, 
and in order to reach them, they needed to cross a portion of the ice top lake. So perhaps they weren't robbed and killed, but maybe the ice buckled under their weight as they crossed it, which would have swallowed them whole. Reaching Bend, the men called for all the help they could gather. Deputy Sheriff Clarence A. Adams and logging contractor slash cabin and fox owner Edward Logan were summoned to join the expanded search, which would resume the following day. The original group of men was grateful for the help, especially from the sheriff, but the party was still only five strong. The expanded group returned to the cabin on Little Lava Lake the next day. As they traveled, they thought about the many calamities that could have befallen the men, and they fought the growing certainty in their guts that they would not be found alive. Once arriving at the cabin, they decided the best course of action would be to follow the only set of visible tracks in the area. There were sled rail impressions in the snow. They'd been partially snowed over, but the searchers were back on their little snowshoes, so they were able to follow them easily. These tracks led them to the shore of Big Lava Lake, just a few hops from the Little Lava Lake cabin. Where the rail tracks ended, they made a discovery. There was the sled. It had been there for some time as it was covered in a snowdrift, but it was promising as it was a clue to at least the direction in which the men headed. But when they cleared the snow away, the searchers' hearts dropped, and the excited rush of their finding was deflated when they found one of its flat boards splashed with blood blood that would later be confirmed to be human. Looking closer to the area around the sled, the men spotted a disconcerting trail of red and pink snowmelt mixed with little clumps of hair running down toward the water. They followed the trail. Indicated by the direction of the pink trail, they peered out across the frozen lake. There, the team spotted a depression in the ice, about 200 feet offshore. The spot had frozen over and was blanketed in snow but it was clear a rough hole had been chopped there earlier in the winter. The group made their way onto the ice and inched closer to the depression. Reaching the thinner spot, one of the men carefully crouched down when he spotted something stuck in the ice. Plucking the item and showing it to the others, it was clearly a light brown human hair. The rail impressions, the blood, the hair, the ice hole, all signs left the men feeling certain the hole in the ice was the grave of Dewey Morris, Roy, Harry Wilson, and Ed Nichols, the trappers. The team returned to the cabin to get some rest. They would resume the search and possible body recovery in the morning, so for now there was nothing they could do but wait for daylight. Besides it being dark, the men were hopeful that the warmer temperatures of the following spring day would help to melt the ice, making it easier to get the bodies for exhumation, if necessary. If they had been killed or otherwise found themselves in the water, the cold temperatures would have preserved them. As desperate as the search party was to find the trappers, they knew one more night in the water would do them no more harm. Given what they had seen that day, the mood was probably low, uneasy, and on high alert. They believed that not only were the trapper trio dead in the lake, but someone had put them there, and that someone could still be lurking in the surrounding woods. Needing to fetch water from the Deschutes River, one of the men left the cabin and made the few-minute walk. As he did, he nearly stepped on another gruesome discovery. On the path, he came upon a slushy patch of snow mixed with dried blood, more hair clumps, and a human tooth. The thing about mountain men is that they aren't really finicky about a lot of things. So, even though they were pretty certain their friends were dead in the lake, Sheriff Adams, Ed, the cabin owner, and HD High Definition Innis returned to Big Lava Lake to catch fish for the group's supper. Maybe they just didn't think about the fact that the fish 
they were eating could have very well been feeding on their friends' corpses, or they just didn't care. You know, circle of life stuff. What was shocking about the moment wasn't the possibility of human flesh-filled fish tummies. It was that the temperatures had hit a sweet spot of warmth, and half the ice covering the top of the lake had melted away. This sudden melt was welcome, but it also hindered the search because the hole in the ice had vanished as well. When Ed Logan found a rowboat on the shore, the men disinterred it from under a mound of snow and went out on the water. It was a short but interminable row to the spot in the lake where the hole had been, and when they reached it, all doubt fell away. The men were dead, their corpses floating face up on the water's surface. The bodies were fully clothed and wrapped in muslin cloth, like a coarse bedsheet. Using ropes and tools, the men attached the trappers to the boat and were able to tow them back to the shore. The smell of death marked a rough perimeter around the lakeside scene where the corpses now lay. Unwrapping the bodies from their impromptu burial shrouds, it was noted the men's flesh, quote, showed significant mutilation from gunfire. One of the men was still wearing his glasses, and the watch on his wrist had stopped at 9.10. That's that other detail, like the calendar. Mm -hmm. Usually it's a, it's a fake out, though, in, in stories. I feel yeah. like it's the, someone smashed the watch to make it look like something, mm -hmm. but it's probably pretty accurate. Interesting that whoever did it would take the time to wrap them. Yeah. Like, or why about, bother? Or were they doing that to drag them out to the the carriage or whatever? Oh, like if they killed them somewhere else. Yeah. And then, oh, yeah, that's smart. And if they happened to 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 come across someone as they were transporting those yeah, bodies, they, they would say it was, oh, we yeah. got a moose. We don't have mooses. Let's Perfect. try, though. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Adams, Logan, and Innes gazed down at the three who had been killed. Dewey Morris, Harry Roy Wilson, and Edward Nichols had all worked together as loggers for the Brooks Scanlon Lumber Company, headquartered in Bend. But what could have transpired between their time as loggers and the winter months that led to their violent demise and disposal in a watery grave? The men had been using the cabin thanks to a couple of Eds. Edward Nichols knew Ed Logan, the cabin's owner, and they had agreed on a pretty sweet deal for the winter. The three trappers could stay in the cabin for the season, and in exchange, they would only need to maintain the cabin and tend to the foxes in the pen out back. Ed Logan's place would be secure, and Ed Nichols and his buds would have a place to stay. Pretty nice. That's a pretty good deal. Trapper Ed and Roy Wilson were last seen by family members over the Christmas holiday of 1923. Besides seeing family and celebrating, they snowshoed their first batch of furs to Bend, which they sold. During this visit, Wilson told family members and friends that the group would be done with trapping soon and was planning on returning home by February. On January 13th, the group had in fact made the eight-mile trek to the Crane Prairie Reservoir, where their supplies had been stowed away. They had gone to get food for themselves and food for the caged foxes. Comparing that date to the food that was found in the cabin during the April search, it appeared that only a day or so of food had been used. So whatever happened to the men, happened sometime between January 13th and 16th. Alan Wilcoxon stopped at the cabin on January 15th. He was the former owner of a resort 10 miles north on Elk Lake. He was trekking a few miles south from his lake to visit Big Lava Lake for funsies, and he stayed overnight with the trappers. I hope they played truth or dare or spin the canteen. <laughs> Wilcoxon departed the following morning and later reported that the men had been in good spirits when he headed out. He was never a suspect, 
but he was the last to see them alive before the killer-slash-killers made their move. After the bodies were found, the search area expanded in hopes that more clues or evidence would be found. Sadly, the missing foxes from the pen were eventually found near the cabin. They had been killed, skinned, and piled beside a tree. Ed Logan believed that whoever killed the animals had stripped their furs quickly. He reached this conclusion because the fox's feet remained attached to the carcasses, which dramatically reduced their market value. The killer had cut and run. After loading Ed, Roy, and Dewey onto sleds, they were hauled to Ben for autopsy. Those examinations detailed that Ed Nichols' jaw and part of his upper chest had been blasted away with a shotgun. He had also been shot in the head with a pistol. Roy Wilson's shoulder had also been shredded with the shotgun, but death for him came from an execution-style shot behind the right ear. Dewey Morris took buckshot to his left elbow, and unlike the other two who met swifter ends with a bullet, had been beaten to death with the hammer found in the fox pen. It was thought Morris had attempted to flee, and the killer or killers had to run him down. The autopsy also confirmed the men had been dead since January. I have a question for yeah. you. When you mentioned that the fox was worth about 17000 in today's money, mm-hmm. was that alive? Alive worth? I think so. Yeah. Now that I'm now actually that you bring it up, I, I am thinking that yeah, because it was for breeding, it probably yeah. they, they weren't oh, going so to be sold for the So it was like a fur. top dog fox that you so. would want to keep yeah, using like a, to breed a others, stud or whatever you would use uh, for. Yeah. I just can't yeah. imagine, you know, skinning foxes would be worth killing people. So what else could be going on? Well, hmm. Hmm. what else could it be? Yes. You want me to tell you? Yes. Well. <laughs> Wait, is there more to the story? There's a little more. With news of the triple homicide reaching Bend, more people wanted to help, or at least wade through the crime scene for some, you know, old-timey entertainment. So the day after the bodies were discovered, the search party ballooned from five to at least a dozen. These included an editor of the Bend Bulletin newspaper, a county coroner, and some family members of the murdered trappers. Investigators believed, quote, the men had been lured from the cabin and quickly ambushed. I believe instead that the men's killer or killers had staked out the cabin from afar. And on January 16th, when the men's overnight guests departed, they made their move. Bursting through the front door would be a quick way of strong-arming three totally unprepared, unarmed, sleepy-eyed men. There were no signs of violence in the cabin, save for some scattered papers on the floor. They had been executed outside, and their bodies dumped. The questions that remained were, what was the motive? And who had that motive? Working together, the Deschutes and Multnomah County Sheriff's Departments mapped the culprit's likely evasion route. It was believed the killer traveled from Big Lava Lake after dumping the bodies before heading west on the Mackenzie River Trail. From there, he snowshoed for 50 miles to Lowell, a town 20 miles outside of Eugene. That would take forever. Yeah. It was heavy snow, too. Oh, and that feeling when of like any winter anything where you're all bundled to be warm, but then you're sweating mm-hmm. and then it's still cold out. Oh, and, and your trudging lips are along. chapped. Oh, that's awful. You just killed three people? Well, yeah. I mean, that person deserves it. But for all the people that had to do it. Just to survive. General, just to feed their families. Yeah. From there, it was a straight shot north to Portland and the Schumacher Fur Company downtown on 3rd and Main. This theory was confirmed when detectives spoke with the owner of the furrier. It was discovered that on January 22nd, four of the skinned fox furs from Ed Logan's cabin had been sold there, and Ed Nichols' stolen ID had been used in the transaction. 
Now that's some good old-fashioned detective work. They tracked it down, yeah. That's impressive. I can't imagine that. I mean, that was not like days after this event. It must have been months and months later. Was that a red flag to the owner? He didn't notice that it was a stolen ID. Yeah, I think. Well, I think so. Harry, by then, I, and I, I imagine that ID didn't even have a picture. Yeah, on I was it gonna back say then. it's not like even if it did, the photo quality oh. would have been. Yeah, I guess I don't really know what IDs were like back then. It was probably like a signature on a paper, if I had to guess. Like, yep, that's me. Look, I'll write my name. You'd think that they'd be known in the area. Oh yeah, the Those trappers. trappers. Yeah. Oh well, this was up in Portland, so they were oh, in. Oh, good point. Yeah, from, it's not from the outside usual of Bend. area. Yeah. Okay. By that time, Morris, Wilson, and Nichols had already been under the ice for days. Carl Schumacher, the Portland fur dealer, was interviewed by police. He described the man selling the furs as American, five foot seven, 150 pounds, wearing khaki clothing, a beaver hat, and leather putties, which are lower leg protective coverings, like you'd see on a, a cowboy boot, a cowboy man, mm-hmm. a ranch man. Cowboy man. Cowboy man. <laughs> Schumacher purchased the furs for $110 cash. As the investigation continued, a report came in from Portland traffic policeman W.C. Bender. He claimed that a man wearing a burlap sack over one of his shoulders had approached him and inquired as to where he might find a reliable fur dealer, and the officer pointed him in the direction of the Schumacher Fur Company. As police in Portland followed the trail of the furs, detectives in the Bend area were still searching for leads. Eventually, it was time to lay the three men to rest. As their memorial services were held, the silent outrage for the lack of justice was palpable. People in Bend were concerned and frustrated. Hunters and trappers wanted to know the monster responsible was locked away, not roaming free, stalking, and waiting to steal their livelihoods and their lives. One suspect eventually came to light. His name was Lee Collins, although he was known to also go by the name Charles Kimsey. Edward Logan, the owner of the cabin, had expressed that, quote, whoever did this was an expert woodsman, well acquainted with the region. Lee Collins was not only a local who was well-versed in the land, it was known he and the Eds had been in a fight. Ooh, mm. Interesting a, turn of events. A thickening plot. <laughs> in 1923, Collins was employed at the Elk Lake Lodge, which is six miles north of Little Lava Lake. After working there through the summer, Lee was charged with theft of property. Not the lodges, though, but Ed Nichols. It was claimed that Lee had stolen Ed's wallet, and this led to a serious beef between Nichols and Lee, with Lee even saying that he was going to get Ed. Wait, he's like, I stole your wallet, but I'm going to get you? (laughs) Mm -hmm. You tattled on me for breaking the law. I don't want to give it back. (laughs) It was right around this time the other Ed, Logan, reported that Lee had stolen some of his expensive fur coats. When confronted, Lee made multiple threats against Logan and then left the area. Or did he? Thinking he could be a viable suspect, police started looking for Charles Kimsey. But they couldn't find him, and it was quite soon the case went cold. The only progress made in the following years was the announcement of a prominent landmark in Bend. Forest Service officials would be naming a trail in honor of Dewey Morris, Roy Wilson, and Ed Nichols. Christened Three Trappers Butte, their names would be displayed at nearly 5,000 feet elevation, off the old Cascades Trail, surrounded by enormous Douglas fir trees. This landmark designation highlighted the effect the Lava Lake Trapper murders had on the Bend area. It was an untreated wound, 
still bleeding. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom or the motherly figure in your life? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send your recipient a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about, for example, your mom's life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then she can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories forever. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Obviously, we love anything surrounding storytelling. It's what we do. So to be able to gift this to my mom, to not only hear her stories, but the stories of my grandparents and other family members, it will create a cherished gift for all of us to enjoy. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN for 10% off today. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up to your door in as little as two days. And when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out and choose more styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours or spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothes for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy, like a pair of faux leather pants for my new band. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits, all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. A few more years passed. Then, in January 1929, Claude McCauley took office as the new Deschutes County Sheriff, and I think he wanted to make a name for himself. He went hard in the investigation, which he renewed. He even claimed to have added 10,000 miles to his vehicle's odometer over four years, once tracking a dead-end lead to Thermopolis, Wyoming, nearly 1,800 miles round trip, all in an effort to find the parties responsible for the Trapper murders. 
During this time, police were still trying to find Kimsey, but there was no locating him. Sheriff McCauley even said that for those four years, the hunt for Kimsey went on unceasingly. It was no surprise he added all those miles to his car. For years, tips came in as to where the man in question was located. Sometimes half a dozen tips would reach him around the same time, all giving different locations their suspect may have been, and all needing to be run down. The 1920s came to an end, and the 30s started without any waves in the case. Then, nearly a decade after the murders, in February of 1933, a local hermit named Bob Bells was arrested in Kalispell, Montana, in connection with the investigation. Why was Bob arrested? Because officials believed Bob was actually Lee Collins, a.k.a. Charles Kimsey. Get him. Get him, boys. Book him. (laughs) He looked similar to the now decade-old photo of the supposed killer, so they took him in to get his fingerprints. There wouldn't be much they could do until they received comparison prints, probably delivered by a postman on a horse. Hello, Kevin Costner. (laughs) From Oregon, Sheriff McCauley mailed Kimsey's prints, warrants, and other comparison photos to authorities in Kalispell, and it became clear Bob Bales was not their culprit. He was promptly released from custody. Poor guy. Yeah, I know. He was just a... He's like, I'm Bob. I'm just a hermit. I'm just Bob. Ask my friends. My trees. The raccoon. (laughs) He calls me Bobby. He was promptly released from custody and thus exits this story. Bye-bye, Bob. Bye-bye. I hope the hermiting went well. Then, on March 10th, 1933, something amazing occurred. The Kalispell City Jailer who had just perused the photos of Charles Kimsey, which police had compared to the face of Bob Bales, was just a-walking down the street and was like, oh, weird, there's Charles Kimsey across the way. Uh, And so he scampered back to police headquarters with the news. He's like, I jail inside the jail. I jail outside the jail. Wherever you are, I will jail you. I am the jailer. So he just happened to see him walking by? Yeah, he was going on his lunch break or whatever, and he just saw him, yeah. So it's unbelievable. thank goodness they had grabbed Bob because the pictures were probably like really fr- like the image of what fresh in everyone's can, mind. Yeah, to mm-hmm. where he's like really aware of what he looks like. It makes me wonder if a tip had been called in about the real Kimsey and the police or witness somehow mixed them up with Bob. I mean, uh, what are the odds that in this small town a man would be arrested for being a man, but he wasn't the man, but the man was actually in that little town? Yeah, that's a really good point. Somebody yeah. saw him brought it up, and then they just got the wrong hermit. Yeah. Ooh, should I call this the wrong hermit? Ooh, Ooh, maybe. Two sheriff's deputies went in the direction indicated by the jailer, and they quickly found and arrested Kimsey without incident. He was super grizzled, five foot seven, medium build, with brown hair, blue eyes, and a scar across his nose, cheek, and the right side of his face. After Kimsey's arrest, His belongings were searched, and it was found he was carrying a pistol and cartridges, a sheathed knife, and a sap, which is either a small weighted club or a long pouch weighted with lead shot, which is used to incapacitate a person with one blow. Oh, dear. Charles Kimsey, now 48, had aged considerably in the nine years since the murders at Little Lava Lake. When police spoke to him, he gave the name Tom Collins. He'd been staying in Columbia Falls, 20 miles north of Kalispell, with a family, not his own. He had passed the home one day to see a woman outside splitting wood and offered to assist her with the work, and he'd been staying there ever since. Luckily for Kimsey, she wasn't a Bell Gunnis type, and he didn't end up eaten by pigs. There was also word in town that Collins, knee Kimsey, 
had beat up his boss's son over a wage disagreement. Initially, Kimsey believed he was in police custody, resulting from that attack. From what officers could tell, it seemed Mr. Kimsey had not been keeping up with current events. He was unaware that Hermit Bob had been arrested for resembling and possibly being Charles Kimsey. Part of the delay in his responding to the name police were calling him was because he claimed he hadn't heard the name Kimsey in years. Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah, that's so I dramatic. forgot my real oh. name. Oh. I haven't heard that name in years. And why is it you're going by a fake name, sir? Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that? I got bored of it. That's nothing. To help them out, he provided some of his other aliases, Lee Collins and Tom Rose. It only took until the next day, March 11th, for the man in custody to finally admit he was, in fact, Charles Kimsey. He said he had a tight alibi for the timeline of the Trapper killings and claimed to be working on the construction of the Moffat train tunnel in Colorado when the murders occurred. Kimsey even said he'd eaten Christmas dinner that year inside the actively under construction tunnel. However, he also had a vast criminal record outside the accusation of killing the three trappers. In 1915, Kimsey was serving a 3-14 to 14 year sentence on a prison farm for grand larceny, which in that case took the form of stolen wheat. He went to prison for stealing wheat. I mean, only because they didn't have TVs back then. Was that the... De- no, that wasn't the Depression. It wasn't a good no, time, though, probably. Before. People were hungry in 1915. I mean, you didn't have boxed foods, so. <laughs> Actually, that's not entirely true because I read in whatever book I was reading The Great Influenza and they talked about how people used to buy macaroni, the noodles. Oh, yeah. In a box. And it was like 25 pounds of pasta. If you bought pasta <laughs> in like the 1900s, it was 25 pounds of it in a crate. That's insane. And, and, and that detail was in there because a woman lost her child and they were just going to take the body away. Uh, from the flu, you know, mm-hmm. and she was like, no, let me put it in the macaroni box first. Oh my God. But they said no. In October, after serving only four months of that term, he stole two horses from the farm and escaped. He had been a wanted fugitive ever since. Wow. You will see here. It's crazy. He just keeps doing stuff and keeps just, well, leaving the area. Yeah. It's all well, it took. We talk about that a lot about how just like basically before the 90s even. But especially back then, yeah, you just up and leave. Find an ID. Don't. Doesn't matter. Yeah. It's not like. Hi, I'm Greg Smith now. They didn't. I mean, farm work, too. Like, you're not getting paid the same way as other people. And if you're willing to to do that work, I'm not going to kick you out or ask questions Mm -hmm. because I need the help. So. In 1923, Kimsey was sought for car theft in Boise. And in October of that year he was wanted by police for attempted murder in Bend. In 1924 and beyond, he was wanted for the Lava Lake murders. In 1925, he passed a bad check in Pocatello, Idaho. In 1927, a warrant was issued in Idaho for Kimsey's arrest, this time for assault and battery. But again, he could not be found. In 1932, he was accused of attempting to poison a sheep herder named Dan O'Brien near Riceland, Montana. The same year in July, he was arrested in Great Falls, Montana for writing a bad check under the name Tom Rose, but was able to flee before he could be identified as Charles Kimsey. Seems that it was almost impossible to get caught for any crime as long as you just walked out of town. (laughs) Charges would be determined after the construction site's payroll was checked for Kimsey or any of the other names he used. If charges could not be brought in Bend, Kimsey would likely be turned over to authorities in Nevada to face a murder charge from 1925. 
He's a bad dude. He's a oh. true lifelong criminal. Yeah, there's some stuff coming up too that's even... Woo! In December of 1925, W.R. Howard, an architectural draftsman and World War I aviator, was making a trip across the country to Florida to deliver a vehicle to his architect friend, A.O. Traganza. He was going to be accompanied by a fellow named William Becker. A.O. had advertised in a local newspaper for a road trip driving companion, and Becker responded. While Model T Fords were sturdy and had impressive gas mileage, they could only top out at about 45 miles an hour. I'm not sure what kind of car they were driving, but it was an early model, so this was going to be a long trip. What has changed societally that the idea of needing to find someone, let alone a stranger, to take a road trip with you <laughs> is like the worst thing I could imagine? Some people still do it. I'm in a travel group online where a lot of people will just like say, hey, I'm going to be in this area. Like who wants to travel with me for the? Wow. Yeah, I mean, I really I can't imagine anything worse than being on a road trip with a stranger. For so many reasons. <laughs> For so many reasons. I have a few reasons coming up. Oh, yeah. That will kind of... I, don't, I probably you could, do could do it. Yeah. It just depends on. Oh, no. Like, that means the you're scenario. the psycho. <laughs> no, I'm just like, I think I'm a little more extroverted in that sense. Like, I am, it, depending on my mood, I'm willing to like go on I and meet someone like that. I would just rather be alone and have my music and not have to try to entertain or worry about like the I temperature do like or that the too. speed the time, or how yeah. I drive or are they okay? Do we need food? Are they going to make me stop to pee? And I, like, for the most part, agree with you. I just think I am the type of person who'd be up for it at some mm. point, you know? Not I. Sorry. <laughs> Starting in his hometown of Salt Lake City, W.R. Howard began the grueling drive to Florida with Becker. December 10th was the last day they were seen alive. And on the 31st, two young boys were arrested in Eagle Pass, Texas, for driving their vehicle. When police inspected it, they found bloodstains. The police held the boys, but they were soon cleared of any wrongdoing when they shared they had purchased the car from some guy in El Paso. Unfortunately, they didn't have his name. After finding the car, police in Utah and Nevada started an extensive search for any sign of Howard or Becker even putting together posses to search the highways from Salt Lake City to San Diego. And they were able to find that the men checked into the Overland Hotel in Las Vegas on the 11th. And after that, nothing. Have you guys watched the movie Posse? I was obsessed with, with it. With Mario Van Peebles? Yes. Yeah, I own it on DVD. <laughs> oh my God, I love that movie. And I think movie. about it often. How has this always happened to us? Billy Zane. Yeah. It's Billy Zane. He's in that. He's no, the villain. I love him. Uh, yes, I love that movie. Stephen Baldwin's in I it. I watched it like a bazillion times. I, me too. Saw it in the theater with my papa. And then I own it on, I have a, di a disc. How exciting. That's so fun. God, we have weird, <laughs> weird, <laughs> the weirdest movies. Yeah, that one really, uh, really got me. I love uh, Western where there's just like a team of dudes who have been, or people who have been a posse of people who've been wronged. And they're like, we got a posse over to this oh, guy. That's, you probably like romanticism style writing too, because it's all about revenge and I, getting justice. You have no idea how much I love revenge and seeking It's one of my justice. favorite types of writing, like the Count of Monte Cristo. I like a comeuppance. It seemed the two men had vanished and their car was sold in the process. That was until a few weeks later when $200 cash and a $50 traveler's check were deposited in the South Trust and Commercial Bank of Los Angeles under the name W.R. Howard. And soon after, the entire account was drained. Searchlight Nevada, where the skeletal remains were found, is 55 miles south of Las Vegas. Whoever dumped the body had gone out of their way to hide it, 
driving a quarter mile off an abandoned road and dumping it off a ravine in a rocky area. Being in the 1920s, identifying skeletal remains took much longer to do. It was ridiculously helpful, though, to investigators that the body had an unsent telegraph in a pocket of their clothing. Part of it read, quote, am driving Tregonza's car to Florida. So they were like, this we're pretty sure this him. is him. Yeah. It's unknown who discovered the remains first, but to help the sheriff, an indigenous man called Baboon, yikes, no. guided the police to the bones. And it turned out William Becker was actually an alias of Charles Kimsey. <gasps> oh, shit. He, oh, so he like saw the ad and was like, hello. He had vanished with W.R. Howard because he had murdered W.R. Howard. Investigators examining the remains determined Howard had been stabbed to death. My guess is from blade marks on the bones. Kimsey waived extradition and went voluntarily with Sheriff McCauley and Arthur Tuck of the Oregon State Police back to Bend. He was handcuffed to one of the men throughout the journey and was returned to Bend on March 17th. Hoping to be able to charge Kimsey right away, police brought him to Portland and placed him in a lineup and asked two eyewitnesses to come in to ID him. They were police officer W.C. Bender and furrier Paul Schumacher, the man who'd purchased the fox furs from the man with Ed Nichols' identification. Bender said he'd never forget the face of the man who'd asked him to point out a good fur dealer that day in 1924. Why? Why was he? Why yeah, would he remember it so vividly? Well, it was uh, just a weird question. I guess. So, well, uh, I've see, seen looking at a photo of Charles Kimsey. He does kind of stick in the mind. Oh, does he have like a distinct? He has a look? distinct face, and he has very like cool blue eyes, and just they has, a, has a, a square jaw, and just looks distinct. I'd say. Okay. Still, that's a. Awfully confident statement. I mean, from a decade. Before. Sometimes, sometimes I, in my opinion, occasionally, police have police officers can sometimes have an overinflated <laughs> sense of the things that they know. Sometimes, maybe, sometimes. allegedly, okay, because they're just people. Yeah, well, that's okay. But it had been years, and Kimsey had aged quite a bit in that time, so Bender could not, in good conscience, make a definitive ID. Schumacher said he could finger Kimsey as the man from 1924, but would not, as Kimsey's life would be on the line at trial. Oh, his life matters now. Oh, oh, like I, he, I should agree with that, but still. Well, but still. So he wasn't even willing to say, yeah, that's who I saw, or he just wasn't certain. He said he could see it, but he, but he I, I guess he's saying, comfortable, I'm not like, 100% sure. I guess, and, I mean, if I, you're the only person on that goes to trial. And, and if they're going to get him, hung. Gets, yeah, yeah. I do appre I appreciate the care in yeah. which he would make that decision, but it's a little shocking for like the amount of crimes he's committed yeah. and the way they died. Yeah. And also for the time in which they occurred. Like that is like, you, it's 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 hard to imagine people not being for yeah. a death penalty. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, they were probably a progressive thinker of their time. Pretty cool. Sheriff McCauley knew that without the identification, it was going to be impossible to prosecute for the Lava Lake murders. Not wanting to let the man go, and since he was certain Kimsey was the culprit, he instead focused on getting everything in place to be able to charge Kimsey for the assault and armed robbery of W.H. Harrison in 1923, a separate incident not to be confused with the killing of W.R. Howard. This would be the only way they would be able to put this monster behind bars. The men crossed paths when Harrison was hired to drive Kimsey from Oregon to Idaho. But an hour east of Portland, at Last Chance Mountain, Kimsey attacked Harrison. After overpowering him, Kimsey bound his wrists and ankles, forced him to consume poison, and dropped his body down an abandoned well. Unfazed, 
Kimsey stole the car and continued east. Thankfully, Harrison had consumed so much of the poison that it made him ill. Vomiting it up, he was able to survive, crawl his way out of the well, and get help from a nearby ranch. After the attempted murder, Harrison moved to California, but he was happy to return north to face the man who almost killed him a decade prior. The man that thought he had been dead and rotting in a well for all that time. When Harrison walked into the courtroom to testify, it was noted that Kimsey looked like he'd seen a ghost. Ooh, I love it. For that attack, and Kimsey's well-known and extensive criminal history, he was sentenced to life in prison, from which he escaped in 1945. <gasps> of course he did. They always did. Oh my gosh. Jails were loosey-goosey. Did they catch him? I believe this is the Oregon State Penitentiary, which I've covered a few cases uh, from like the past, and people just constantly escape from that prison. Oh yeah, they yeah. still do. They try. <laughs> Unlike his previous prison escape, this one sucked by comparison. After a week in hiding, he was captured by a prison guard only 15 minutes after taking his first steps outside. <laughs> oh, embarrassing. So bad. Charles he Kim- tried, though. He did. Yeah, good, good job. Yeah, and I think he was like 60 then or something? Oh. 45? It's sprightly. Funky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think he was 60. He was born in 1885, yeah. Charles Kimsey was paroled in 1957. What? And he relocated to Idaho, where he died in February 1976. And his obituary is, well, it's not funny because it's an obituary, but the, the details of his life from like 1912 to 1950 have been <laughs> pretty vague, pre- pretty obscured by stuff. <laughs> yeah, pretty obscured. Just as he was like a ranch, a rancher mm. in Montana, which he yeah, wasn't. Who, I, there was somebody I had just covered. I can't remember which case that was and his obituary. They were like, and then he was, oh, oh the I kid in Alaska. The yeah, the Alaska was the hunting. One. And then like, and he was in California for some time. And then he... It's like, yeah, when in he prison, was in prison. Yeah. Like, what's that? That's so interesting how they were so sure it was him for the trappers, but then never, never really got an answer for it. I guess we have to assume it was him because of the furrier. I really right? think so. The The only thing that was really that I noted that was like that, that really um, was evidence for Kimsey's claim that he didn't do it was that. Uh, Arthur Tuck, the Oregon State Police officer who escorted him to Ben, was, I guess, active in the investigation. And he found that the uh, that that alibi was airtight. Oh, Oh, for where he had been working. Yeah. So I don't know what that I don't I don't know what that means. But I mean, in my mind, I think that record keeping was a joke back then. People didn't know what anyone looked like. Well, and And it wouldn't be hard to fake one. And what would be the alternative is it's like Occam's razor, right? Right. What is the alternative scenario that would have happened? Yeah, it's like some random person saw a crime of opportunity to take some foxes and they happened to look like him. And and why would they be out there? You know, like, yeah, I just I find it so remote too, so far out of civilization. Yeah. But then again, stuff does happen. Was that something that he was known to do? I know you said that he had been in the area. Was he known for like? Going into the woods and stuff. I think so. I think when he was working as a logger, I think as he moved around, I'm I'm almost certain he just kind of lived wherever. And like he found that place when he was in uh, Montana, that house, he just kind of like fell into living there. Oh, right. And I'm sure he just kind of did that. I think he just drifted. And you'd probably, because of that, you'd probably have to have pretty good survival skills. Yeah. Like you don't know if you're going to be in a house that night or out in the woods. Or and anything. I think through work, too, I think he did a lot of like that type of outdoor work. So, mm. he, I mean, just by just by getting by, he probably learned a ton. Well, I'm really glad they were able to get him on something else since that eyewitness, you know, since he didn't take the stand. Yeah. yeah luckily, Otherwise, they were able to put that together. Walked. 
and, and, and really to be able to put a, a, a murder like that across state lines, like way far away from yeah. where they are and to be able to connect those dots is pretty remarkable, I think, for the time. Yeah, it would be interesting to hear what a psychological evaluation of him would be just like it because he sounds sociopathic, you know, to find a guy and be like, oh, yeah, I'll drive you wherever. Oh, wait, I'm going to poison you and tie and you up and put you in a ID. well. Yeah. Yeah. And that, just, that, that does seem like unnecessary. Yeah. It's different than just like, OK, now I have this opportunity. I'm going to kill him and steal his car. Yeah. You're do doing it in this like really horrible way and yeah. letting him like suffer down there. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. The callousness Bad that guy. he shows is really, uh, yeah, really upsetting. So there's a little bit of an epilogue here. Oh, that right there is the end of Kimsey's story. But it may not be the end of the story because it has become commonly thought Kimsey had killed the trappers in 1924 alongside an accomplice. Oh. Author Melanie Tupper in her books, The Sandy Knoll Murder, Legacy of the Sheep Shooters and The Trapper Murders, A True Central Oregon Mystery, identifies a man named Ray Van Buren Jackson as this possible accomplice to Kimsey. And I haven't read these books, but I will be covering them uh, in, a, in a future episode because Ray Van Buren Jackson's story is uh, there's just too much detail to get into mm. and it covers a long okay. period of time. But I have some bullet points here. Uh, so the author, Melanie Tupper, shows extensive links between Charles Kimsey and Ray uh, Jackson. They, their trajectories were the same. So they, they, they were just kind of in, the same, in a similar orbit throughout all this time. Ray Van Buren Jackson was originally from Sweet Home, Oregon, outside of Eugene. And he was thought to be either fully or somewhat involved in at least six murders. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, and I believe when he was a kid, well, this happened to him, but I think it was when he was a kid, he witnessed a family member get hit by a train and watched the train actually run over the man's head. It was his Ooh. uncle. And that's that kind of trauma that, that can really yeah. reshape a mind. Yeah. He served three years in prison for check fraud. And then upon his release, he took a job as a teacher, first through eighth grade, <gasps> though he had no teaching credentials. What the hell? <laughs> he was known as a cruel disciplinarian who once had a fist fight with a student. Oh. And then the next day came in, sat down and laid a pistol on the desk and was like, you guys want to keep fighting? And oh, they said, no, thank you. My God. Um, and this is a quote from uh, oh, uh, Offbeat Oregon, which is just one of the best yeah. sites. Oh, my. Quote, nearly every time there was a brutal, suspicious homicide somewhere in Oregon's third largest county, Lake County at the time, I imagine. He just happened to be on hand, helping out, giving advice talking excitedly to the cops and uh, to the press, of course he was. which we now know uh, yeah. typical serial killer behavior. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Jackson died by suicide in 1938. He shot himself in the chest with a rifle yeah. uh, with the assistance of a, with the assistance of a fire poker to help reach the trigger. Oh my Ooh. gosh. In the chest of all places. Which yes. after I read it made me think about the vanity of some people who do die by oh, suicide uh -huh. and they don't want to ruin their face. Yeah. And I think that he, I mean, he was, I think they said he was very like, Attractive. Slick, very, yeah, he was, he was pretty kind of handsome, I think, for back then, I think, and that he was smooth and suave, but also just a uh, dangerous man. Yikes. Um, yeah, shit was wild back then. That's my last bullet point. <laughs> shit was wild. <laughs> shit was wild. So, yeah, I'll definitely be covering that uh, Ray Van Buren Jackson later. Um, fascinating stuff. Cool. Wow. So, thanks. Good thanks. Bye, bye, everybody. <laughs> See you later. Happy times. Happy summer. <laughs> Happy summer to all. Happy whatever day it is that you're listening to this. Monday. <laughs> Tuesday. Okay. All right. Your birthday. Oh, gosh. Halloween. Ooh. Okay, oh, let's go. Okay.
get the stick out of my ass. <laughs> we could have yanked it for you. Hello. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> Weird Al, yank my stick. <laughs> oh, dear. Stupid little wet mouth of mine. Then trudged a quarter mile northwest from there through heavy slowed. What did they travel no, through? No. <laughs> through heavy slowed? No, no. Is that like chode? You tugging my chode? I'm trying something. What is that? Being confident. <laughs> Good for <Stupid>. you. <laughs> there was a, a, re a review that I got that sucked and I was, it just it had an effect and I've like adjusted. And you've fueled it. Reasonably. Fueled you. Yeah. It makes me want to just, yeah, be much better and like just somehow make that person who wrote it Feel catch stupid. on fire <laughs> to death. <laughs> Don't they know I'm a child of divorce? <laughs> <laughs> I can't be told I'm boring. Bring me up. Don't Wait, tear me down. Wait, somebody said you were boring? Yeah, if you don't like me, uh, why? <laughs> well, back then when they're trapping it. If you're trapping ago, it, oh, yeah. eating it, and using the fur. But hundred don't years ago, buy fur. A hundred years ago, you gotta trap the fur. You gotta eat the meat. You gotta <laughs> but, sell like, it. Don't buy fur in a store. Nowadays. 2023, don't do the fur. <laughs> Nur. Say ner to fur. The calendar. The calendar. Bottle scotch. Bottle scotch. In my throat. It was possible the trapper. Maybe trampers. Trampers. Trampers keepers. They are trappers keepers. <gasps> In today's dollars. Dollars. But what could have transpired between their time as loggers and the winter trapping months? God damn. Tramping months? I have that's my months. summer <laughs> hot girl tramping months 2023 Austin baby look out Austin <laughs> suck your dry Ew. of uh, margaritas yeah but what could have transpired between their time as loggers and the winter tramp god damn it we call each other bay all the time ew I mean yeah we do <laughs> If she wants to be burped, I'll burp her. Sometimes I sound like an adult baby I, when I talk. I think that often about myself yes. as well. And you. And you. <laughs> I, well, I am an adult That's baby. That's mostly what we talked about yesterday hanging out. Doesn't he sound like a baby? We didn't, Josh. Don't cry. <laughs> like a big baby. <laughs> well, if you hear a crinkling, it's not my diaper. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Weird that you would bring it up on your own, so... I wish there had been a crinkling just I now. know. I wish I had some plastic. <laughs> oh, oh. Wasn't that noise? That's, is that your chastity belt? <laughs> go, 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 go. <laughs> well. She has volunteered is what I'm hearing. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not a good caretaker. <laughs> oh, you found something. Stop it. I hate it. I've got That's my hand be... down my diaper. <laughs> That's going to be so... me next Sunday. <laughs> You're going to get the mesh diapers doing... that all the moms love. I know. I hope so. Are you doing master masturbating bear over there? Ew. I just have a bunch of Velcro strips in my hand and I'm squeezing them. So <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. All right. Let's get back on task. Let's do it. I don't even know if I have a genital anymore. <laughs> a genital. <laughs> Gen <laughs> That's the worst phrasing of that possible. I don't know if I have a genital anymore. <laughs> Called <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. 
didn't just fall out of your yes, mouth? Yes, it did. It, fell, it detached and <laughs> fell off. Oh, my God. I'm getting a little thirsty. I've got thirsty. it this time, guys. <laughs> I can't wait to never listen to that clip. That was awful. I'm going to loop that it shit. It felt bad. <laughs> that scared me. It's got to barf real quick. All right. Well, I was like adding in some words that aren't in the script and that, as we all know, will just fuck your shit up like nothing else. Yes, that's true. Cordell. Hannibal. Emily. Yeah, I know. Hannibal. <laughs> sorry. Okay. I, I, just I need you to laugh. laugh. No, it's so I, funny. I just didn't so laugh. Funny. I'm sorry. Okay. It takes effort, so I really am selective about it. Yeah. <laughs> you just laughed at that. Because yeah, I laugh at my, my own jokes. Oh, of course. Obviously. Of course. He also had a vast criminal record outside. Oh, no. Hello? I've been gonged. Your, <laughs> goodbye. Your chastity belt. <laughs> Was that a fart? I wish. I'd love to get a, a metal colon. The police held the boys, but they were quickly... Quickly. Quickly. 19th. It's 17th. Idiot. Wow. You what fucking a moron. Well, I saw the number. You stupid. You Come show me on. a six and I say four? Yeah, I do that literally all the time. Well... Yeah, I'm not shocked by this. This is normal behavior. I don't. (laughs) I never make mistakes. I really, well, maybe maybe we have dementia. Who knows? Yeah. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written, hosted, and edited by Josh McCullough, Emily Rowney, and Alicia Holland. Feel free to email us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe on Patreon to get exclusive access to ad-free and older episodes. For only $5, you can access Patreon-exclusive episodes and content. For more of us, be sure to follow on all the socials, listen to Josh and Alicia on their other show, Always Be My Sisters, and follow Emily on TikTok at M underscore murderintherain. And check my boss.